Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Hello, all, and welcome to another episode of Finneran's Week. How are you? How do you do? I hope this season finds you well, healthy, thriving, and above all, reading. Now, this will be an installment of my book review series, to which I've already contributed about three or four episodes. Now, this week, I'll be reviewing the works of Christopher Marlowe, fabulous English playwright of the late 16th, early 17th century, a contemporary of Shakespeare, of whom we should be more familiar. And with that, my review. In The Anxiety of Influence, the 1973 work by which the late Harold Bloom's reputation as our generation's greatest literary critic was, once and for all, established. A reputation, I might add, of which he never once, up until his 89th year of life, proved himself undeserving. The distinguished Yale professor spoke about the effect that Christopher Marlowe had on William Shakespeare. If, perchance, you are interested in learning more about this fascinating relationship, the preface of Bloom's work is dedicated almost entirely to its fuller examination. On the latter, according to Bloom, the former had a profound and abiding influence, beneath which a young, aspiring actor and playwright by the name of William Shakespeare squirmed for many a harried year. Marlowe, star of the University Wits, to which the low-born, unschooled actor from Stratford-on-Avon doubtless would have been refused admission, likely would have been a, quote, stimulating burden for the apprentice Shakespeare, unquote. A uh, stimulating burden, indeed. How I love Bloom's inimitable tongue. But Marlowe seems to have been more than a mere burden for the apprentice Shakespeare, to whom success at the outset of his career, was rather slow in coming. He was something of an imposing master, a looming force from whom Shakespeare needed to emancipate himself. Bloom goes on, quote, The major mark of Shakespeare's emancipation from the image of Marlowe is the difference between the two Jews, Barabbas and Shylock, end quote. Bloom sees this as the point at which Shakespeare, quote, swerved away from his own Marlovian origins, end quote, after which he could give us the, quote, equivocal triumph of transforming Marlowe's Machiavels into comic heroes or comic villains, end quote. So, it wasn't until The Merchant of Venice that Shakespeare was finally able to issue his declaration of independence from his deceased contemporary and rival, Marlowe. He'd been dead seven years. Thereafter, Shakespeare was fully exercised of Marlowe's lingering influence, relieved of the anxiety from which, throughout his young adulthood, he suffered. The universal recognition of Shakespeare's name and the widespread unfamiliarity with that of Marlowe attest to the fact that Shakespeare, quote, swallowed up Marlowe the way a whale scoops up a minnow. End quote. Yet, this ignores the, quote, 
extraordinary case of indigestion that Marlowe caused the Moby Dick of all playwrights. End quote. Just how strong an impetus to genius was that indigestion, I wonder. Bloom, by whom I was first introduced to Marlowe, set my expectations high. Anyone capable of causing indigestion in Shakespeare must be made forthwith essential part of my own literary diet. And so I sat down to table, book in hand, and gobbled up Marlowe's four plays. Tamburlaine, Dr. Faustus, the Jew of Malta, and Edward II. In so doing, I was entertained, delighted, and satisfied, while my hunger for great poetry was appeased. Shakespeare, who exceeded Marlowe's meager dramatic output by over thirty plays, outlived the university wit by over twenty years. It should be noted that Shakespeare, enthralled to the mandates of nature, and unassisted by the healing powers of modern science, died at the strikingly young age of fifty-two. Today, that age often inaugurates one's midlife crisis, into which the half-century-year-old retiree giddily leaps. I often wonder how Shakespeare would have approached his middle and twilight years, at which point the fertility of one's mind is, if not completely barren, then noticeably less fruitful. Even an incapacitated Shakespeare might have produced, now and again, sporadic works of genius. I wonder what he might have accomplished had he lived to seventy-two. The same question can be applied to Marlowe, whose gruesome death at the hands of an unnamed assailant in a tavern silenced his pen at the age of thirty, the very same age at which I write these words today. Having attained to the same age, and having produced no lasting work by which posterity might remember my name, I too, like Shakespeare, feel a bit anxious beneath Marlowe's influence. To what lofty heights of eloquence, I ask, might the slain dramatist have soared, had he evaded the murderer's knife? How many more characters would we know and love, upon whom the unmistakable imprint of Marlowe is stamped? If only he'd not gotten drunk that day. <laughs> Forgive me, dear reader, but I must quickly disclose to you exactly how Marlowe died. He was stabbed, just above the eye, with a dagger. Oh, ouch! And you thought an ice-cream headache was painful. To a fatal depth of two inches, the blade penetrated Marlowe's forebrain, rendering him at once... Paralyzed, speechless, motionless, and finally, lifeless. For the marvelous claim that it was an assassination, Marlowe was earlier in life an intelligence officer for the British government, on whom, as you can probably imagine, any number of disgruntled victims of his espionage might have yearned to seek their revenge. The details of the day offer little support. The gang of which Marlowe was a part with which he was drinking all day long, was nothing if not frolicsome. It wasn't till the evening that Marlowe was stabbed and killed. If, as we like to believe, it were a true assassination, it likely would have been carried out much sooner, and probably in a much cleaner fashion. <laughs> in the words of Byron, 
His death was stranger than fiction. "'Twas strange, but true. And if, as we agree, his death was stranger than fiction, I think it only fitting that we briefly survey his fiction. Among his four works, that into which I chose first to delve was Dr. Faustus. It's an excellent work, chock full of humor, impiety, and poetry, from which Goethe's more famous Faust differs in many important ways. Between the two works, I'm undecided which I prefer. As an Anglophone, I incline toward that of Marlowe, whose use of blank verse is, until the rise of Shakespeare, unmatched. Marlowe's Dr. Faustus is a brighter flame at times, more brilliant, of greater heat, though somewhat shorter-lived. Goethe's Faust is a fire of fainter, though more sustained luminosity and brilliance, whose reach is higher. Of course, his part two must be judged on a different plane. To Goethe, the tale of Faust was something of a homegrown national story. He's a figure deeply embedded in the rich soil of Germanic myth. Based on the real-life Johann Georg Faust, a Renaissance alchemist, astrologer, and sorcerer, the story has been told and retold a thousand times in a hundred different ways. Each retelling is, in my opinion, splendid, yet none more so than that endeavored by Marlowe. He was, so far as I can tell, the first to anglicize this Teutonic fantasy of a man whose overreaching pride, whose unslakable thirst for omniscience, whose intemperate lust for power caused him to strike a deal with the devil, to whom he relinquished his soul. A brief interlude. To Shakespeare, I promise forever to be faithful. But Marlowe's command and effortless use of blank verse is extraordinary and quite enough to tempt a fickle heart away from him to whom he's espoused. His verse has a certain musical quality that is just a delight to read. A delight that's augmented, I should say, if you feel comfortable enough to honor his eloquence by reading it aloud. And you should. If Marlowe's musicality surpasses, now and again, the honey-bedewed lines of Shakespeare, the latter's plots are, without exception, far and away superior. About this, there's simply no question. The Jew of Malta, with which I spent another evening, is a troubling drama. That it's troublesome, though, is due not to its malicious and unmitigated anti-Semitism, against which, as an estranged son of Abraham, I can't but reflexively bristle, but to its utter lack of nobility. No one in the play, a putative tragedy, bears the stamp of a noble mien. This cannot be as no less an authority than Aristotle reminds us, for a play truly to be tragic, such a character must appear, must grace the stage, must arouse our affection, move our empathy, earn our respect, discover his flaw, encounter a reversal, lose his esteem, and suffer, ultimately, the inescapable torment of fate. And this he must do in one place and within the short span of twenty-four hours. The Maltese Jew, Barabbas, more sinning than sinned against, to borrow and reverse a line spoken by the Mad King Lear, is as thoroughly odious a creature as you'll find. He's an irredeemable beast, 
a savage usurer, a bloodthirsty murderer, an uncaring father, a man totally devoid of all humaneness, scruples, principles, and love. For a moment, early in the play, one's sympathies incline toward him. He's unlawfully and without due compensation stripped of his wealth. The state, to whom, as an oppressed religious minority, he has no redress, simply takes from him that which he's earned. Thenceforth, he engages in such ghastly behavior, such inexcusable and foul misconduct in pursuit of vengeance, that he becomes hardly more than a cheap caricature, an offensive depiction of the author's unsubtle hatred of Jews. This unconcealed animosity toward the chosen people, from whose seed I sprout, is a blot on the work. No one else, not Ithamore, Barabbas's Turkish slave, nor any of the Maltese government officials, nor any of the Turkish emissaries, is noble in the classical sense. Abigail, Barabbas's apostate daughter, is the most appealing character. Tamburlaine, Marlowe's longest work, which was published in two parts, is a grandiose historical drama by which the reader will undoubtedly be captivated. Loosely based on the life of the Mongol emperor Timur, Marlowe's play charts the majestic rise, unstoppable career, and dignified death of Asia's most bloodthirsty and dominant king. Endowed with the gifts of divinity, Tamburlaine is led by some interested providence to defeat every single kingdom with which he comes into contact. The Turks, the Egyptians, the Ottomans, the Indians, none could decelerate, much less resist, Tamburlaine's manifest destiny. With a combination of charisma, a direct gift from the gods, and cruelty, an outcome of his occupation, Tamburlaine dies without having experienced the indignity of defeat. Finally, there's another historical play, Edward II, with which I urge you to spend some time. This, too, is beautifully written and involves a protagonist of whose decency and uprightness even the most discerning of readers can't be too certain. This, after all, was the Marlovian way. We see it time and again. The main character, of whom we should be supportive, to whom we should warmly extend our sympathy and hope, disappoints us with his ignoble conduct. Edward is no exception. A closet homosexual. He's willing to abdicate his throne and abandon his country to the depredations of the French, no less, so long as he can enjoy the illicit amours of his courtly friend, Gaveston. Gaveston, a low-born French interloper, stole the young king's heart, a theft to which the nobles responded rather violently. On more than one occasion, they attempted to banish Gaveston from England, only to have their efforts frustrated by his immediate return. Eventually, they assassinated him and deposed Edward. The king was locked in a tower and ultimately sodomized to death. The king's son then acceded to the throne. And there you have it, my friends, the four works of Christopher Marlowe, with a little bit of criticism 
and a little bit of background, a little bit of biography sprinkled about. It is with unbridled enthusiasm that I encourage you to sit down with these four works. Uh, Tamberlin, Dr. Faustus, the Jew of Malta, and Edward II. And to realize that these works had a profound influence on the, well, the greatest writer the world has ever seen, William Shakespeare. So go, right now, order the book online, Christopher Marlowe, the Oxford World Classics Edition is my preferred one. Uh, read it and let me know what you think. Let me know if you too are influenced the way Shakespeare was. Now, if there are any other books of which you'd like me to do a review, uh, on which you want to get my humble opinion, please send me uh, recommendations either on my email, uh, finnerinswake at gmail.com, or through my social sites on Instagram or Facebook or any of those on which you people uh, chat. And with that, my dear listeners, I bid you adieu. Farewell from Finnerin's Wake.